Well, we're talking about kings and queens from the Bible because, uh, in a sense, their lives are a lot like ours. They lived a very high-stakes lifestyle. They had a lot of resources, and they had a lot of freedom. And if you, put a, if you, if, if you, if you give somebody a lot of resources and a lot of latitude to make decisions, um, then those decisions that they're going to make in life are going to be big decisions that are going to reverberate in major ways throughout their life and in their future. And so that sort of high-stakes lifestyle is something that we should be able to identify with in 2018 America. I know... Most of us wouldn't consider ourselves rich. But if you were to ask people around the world, they would tell you that they think that Americans are the richest people in the world and that they have the most freedom of anybody in the world. So we do have big decisions to make. And those decisions really do have major impacts uh, in our future. So that's what we're talking about in these weeks that we're spending together. In a sense, a lot of what we're focusing on um, is how can we learn from the big decisions um, that these individuals in the Bible made. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that these stories that are in the Bible were written in the past For the purpose of teaching us, we're supposed to learn a lesson from these stories. And you may remember from last week, we said some of these stories are are warning lessons. We're supposed to learn from this person's bad example, not to go down the same road that they did. And then the Bible said some of these lessons are hope lessons, and they're supposed to teach us about things that will help us have a a brighter future. So this is going to be one of those warning lessons, because we're looking at a guy who really messed things up big time. But it's going to teach us something about advice. And I I don't know if you're like me, but advice is important to me. I don't make big decisions in a vacuum. I I don't make big decisions without asking people for their input. But one thing I've learned in life, and maybe you've learned this as well, is that advice is a double-edged sword. Sometimes it's really good, but if you get bad advice, it can make you worse off than you were to start with. I mean, it can make it more complex. Right? Because you started off needing to know, do I, make, do I go this way with this decision or do I go that way? But now you get advice from multiple people and this person says do this and this person says do that. It started off complex. Now it's, you know, it went from checkers to 3D chess. Now you're just trying to figure out, okay, what do I do with all this input that I've gotten? And a lot of us are getting a lot of input from people in our circle. So how do you tell the difference between good advice and bad advice, and how important is it that you develop that grid? That's what we're going to talk about today, and we're going to talk about a guy named Rehoboam. How's that for a name? I know a lot of the ladies who are expecting children now just figured out what name they want to give their son. Rehoboam, that's the name we're going to give this little guy, right? Um, But we're going to talk about a guy named Rehoboam, and he was the son of Solomon, who's the king that we talked about last week. If you were here with us, you knew you, you, you heard that Solomon was a pretty good king at first. He understood as a young man that he, he wasn't ready in a lot of ways to be king. He didn't have the wisdom and the understanding and the insight that it takes to be a ruler. He said, man, I don't even really know how to come in a room and leave a room the way a king is supposed to. And so in his dialogue with God, he said, I, what I need more than anything else is wisdom. And God loved that. God said, look, since you didn't ask for me to make you rich and stuff, you, you asked to be wise. I'm going to give you all kinds of stuff. I'm going to make you the wisest person that's ever lived, and I'm going to bless you with a bunch of stuff that you didn't ask for. And so in the early part of Solomon's reign, he exercised that wisdom and there were a lot of good things happening. But the other thing that we talked about last week is that just because you have wisdom, and a lot of people do, but just because you have wisdom does not necessarily mean you will use wisdom. And Solomon had this weird sort of midlife crisis that he hit, you know, and, and, and he decided what I need in life is a bigger house and a red sports car, and I'm going to go find out the meaning of life. I'm going to find out what's going to be fulfilling and make me happy, because I'm not happy yet, and I'm, I'm, I'm this far into my life, and I, I need to figure out what is life all about, what's going to make me happy, and he basically um, 
spent through enormous sums of money experimenting with anything and everything that he, might, he thought might make him happy. He, he experimented with substances and with sex, and, and at, at a certain point, he started trying to build large properties and, and amass large amounts of wealth, anything that he thought might make him happy. Well, if you want to hear how that all turned out, you know, it's, it would be good to go back and watch last week's message because my dad did a great job of covering that. I want to talk for a second about the backstory because as Solomon is spending all this money and he's trying to accumulate even more money, uh, trying to make himself happy, what happens is he bankrupts his country. He, he, when, when, he, when not enough money is coming in, he raises the taxes. And then he raises the taxes again and again and again until basically everybody in Israel is living beneath the poverty line. And then when he starts building all these huge buildings, he can't get enough people to, to do the construction work. So he develops a plan of forced labor. He basically develops slave camps of people who will build these properties for him. And so when you read the story of Solomon, you have to keep in mind that there is this undercurrent of dissatisfaction of the people in Israel. They're upset. The longer Solomon reigns, the more and more upset they're getting because this is not how you treat people. And this Solomon in a midlife crisis, this is what his son Rehoboam saw. Rehoboam wouldn't have been paying attention in the early years when Solomon was doing things right. Rehoboam was watching his dad in these years when all he was doing was trying to... to to find a way um, to make himself happy with things and possessions and properties and so forth. And so Rehoboam watched as his dad more or less proved that being a king is about the people of the nation making your life good. That being a king is about everybody who's part of your country serving you. And Rehoboam was completely ready for that kind of reign. When his dad died, he was going to basically come in and do the same sorts of things his dad was doing. He was going to make it bigger, build bigger properties, amass larger sums of money. This is kind of what he came in to do. And this is where we pick up the story. The Bible's going to tell us about how things went for Rehoboam, right? So the Bible says that after 40 years of reigning over Jerusalem, Solomon died. He was buried in the city of David, which was named for his father. And then his son Rehoboam became the next king. So Rehoboam goes to Shechem where all Israel had gathered, which by the way, sounds like everybody from Israel came to Shechem. It's not true. What this meant was that, that a representative of each of the 12 tribes came to Shechem. And there was a reason for this. This is the ancient Orient. There was no codified um, uh, you know, legal protocol for succession. The way that succession happened was the new person who was the heir apparent would show up in a centralized location all 12 of the tribes would send a representative and, and they would place their stamp of approval on the new king. Yes, we will respect you. Yes, our tribe is gonna recognize you as king. And once that consensus was there, it was like, all right, it's a done deal. This is the, the coronation moment. This person is, is the new king. So he expects, when Rehoboam shows up in Shechem, he expects these 12 guys to be there who are gonna vet him as the new king. But there was another person there as well. And this guy's name is Jeroboam. Now, I know we already have a lot of players in our drama here. We've got Solomon and, and his son Rehoboam. So I hate to add somebody else in the mix, but you need to know about Jeroboam. Jeroboam uh, had been hired by Solomon when Solomon was doing all this forced labor stuff. And he hired Jeroboam to be sort of like a supervisor over some of that. So Jeroboam had seen firsthand what slavery had been doing to the country. He'd watched how Solomon had drained every last nickel out of the people in the country. And he flipped on Solomon. He became a voice for the opposition. He, he, he became a, a, a voice for the people saying, it's not fair, it's not okay, you can't do this to people. And so that didn't sit well with Solomon. He didn't need somebody starting a revolt. So Solomon uh, went to go capture Jeroboam, potentially even kill him. And because of that, back when Solomon was alive, Jeroboam fled to Egypt. But now Jeroboam hears 
the Solomon's dead and his kid is getting ready to be the new king. And so when, when these 12 leaders show up in Shechem, guess who also shows up? Jeroboam, right? And all these 12 leaders of the tribes, they like Jeroboam plenty because he's been the only guy who's been saying this isn't fair and something needs to happen. So now you've got this weird dynamic. Rehoboam showing up to have everybody crown him king and there is a caucus waiting for him. They're gonna have a little discussion about how things have been going because they, they put up with Solomon. They had a certain loyalty to him. You know, I mean, he had been a good king at first. He was the son of David, but no more. There's, we're gonna get this fixed. We're gonna get this dealt with. So they said, we're gonna speak with Rehoboam. We're gonna have a little chat. More or less, they're saying, before, you have, before, any, before anybody goes putting crowns on anybody's head, we're going to have to fix this. So they said, listen, your father was a hard master, and you need to lighten the harsh labor demands and heavy taxes that your father imposed on us. Then we, we will be your loyal subjects. All right, very simple if-then statement. If you'll back off on this craziness that your father started, um, we'll support you. But if you don't, I mean, think about this. They're basically saying, you're not going to be king unless you back off on these bad policies. So here's what Rehoboam does in response. Rehoboam replied, well, okay, give me three days to think this over, then come back for my answer. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam discussed the matter with the older men who had, who had counseled his father Solomon. Okay, so a couple things here. If you've ever read the book of Proverbs, anybody in here love the book of Proverbs like I do? The book of Proverbs is an amazing resource. Um, Solomon wrote most of the... the the text that you see in the book of Proverbs for Rehoboam's benefit. He wanted his son to understand uh, the, the elements of wisdom, which is what this book is about. Um, and it seems like Rehoboam had listened, you know, some. I think Rehoboam had had, had had his ears open a little bit, and so he'd caught a few things that his dad had said, one of them being, you don't pull triggers fast. If it's a big decision, it has big consequences, you wait a little bit, sleep on it, let it breathe, make sure that you've given a decision a little bit of time. So he said, I need three days before I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. The other thing is, his dad had always said, there's wisdom in counsel. Get advice, talk to counselors, find out what the right thing to do is here. And so he's also doing that. He's going to talk to his um, father's advisors. So those are good things, and so far he's doing all right. It all kind of falls apart when he meets with these guys. Now, the counselors, these older guys who had, who had been um, Solomon's counselors, these guys are folks that have been part of Solomon's you know, board of directors probably for almost all 40 years of his reign, right? If you think back to 1978 to now, that is a, a long time to be in politics and to be gaining experience. These guys, almost 40 years, they'd been developing you know, uh, domestic policy, foreign policy, economic policy. These guys knew their stuff. So it made sense that Rehoboam went and talked to them uh, about this. And so when he meets up with these guys in the boardroom, he says, listen, what's your advice? How should I answer these people? And this is what they said. Listen, if you are willing to be a servant to these people today and give them a favorable answer, so if you're willing to tell them you're going to do what they asked and back off on these policies, they will always be your loyal subjects. Well, there's something important about the advice that they were giving him. More or less, they were kind of, they, they were kind of telling him that his dad had been making a mistake. They were kind of saying, look, you had the impression from your dad that being a leader, being a king, was about everybody that you lead serving you. And your dad had that wrong. You need to flip that dynamic. If you're going to be a successful leader, you need to serve the people that you lead, which is great advice, by the way. A great leader always serves the people that, that they lead. And he said, if, he said, if you'll do that, these guys said, if you'll do that, they'll be loyal to you. It was great advice. Great advice for any leader. The problem is Rehoboam was not looking for this answer. This is not what he wanted to hear. And keep this in mind. What finances Rehoboam's salary? Where does Rehoboam get the money 
to build his own houses? Where does he get the labor to build his own houses? What makes Rehoboam a rich person? Well, the taxes and the forced labor. If he does what these people are asking for, he's taking a pay cut. Who knows, maybe a 20%, 25% pay cut. This is not the answer he was looking for, right? So the Bible says that Rehoboam rejected the advice of these older men and instead asked the opinion of the young men who had grown up with him and were now his advisors. There was a period of time uh, in, in the ancient times where a king's advisors would just happen to be the people who happen to have proximity around him as he was growing up. And this is definitely the case here. So more or less, here's what happens. Rehoboam gets up from the boardroom table. He looks around at these experienced gray heads and he says, guys, you're crazy. I'm not gonna do that. That's ridiculous. I'm not taking a pay cut. I don't know what kind of education you guys got, but the king does not take pay cuts. And so he leaves the boardroom and he goes over to the frat house and he says, guys, put down the pizza. We've got a major decision to discuss here, right? And these, these are some winners right here, right? Um, and he says, what's your advice? How should I answer these people who want me to lighten the burdens imposed by my father? And they said, well, here's what you should tell those complainers who want a lighter burden. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Yes, my father laid heavy burdens on you, but I'm gonna make them even heavier. He's saying, I'm, I'm gonna make this worse for you than it was to start with. My father beat you with whips, but I will beat you with scorpions. Well, that's a weird mental picture. He didn't mean, he, didn't mean he was gonna beat them with these little creepy crawly things with his stinging tail. What he meant was, at that time, people used the term scorpion to talk about a whip that had a spike in the end of it. He said, listen, my dad in the forced labor camps, his minions would, would hit people with lashes to get them to do work, but you thought you had pain under my dad. I'm gonna send them whips that have spikes in them, and you're gonna see, you're gonna really feel what the pain is like. So this is what these guys told him he needed to tell the people. Now, if Rehoboam had a couple of brain cells, just a couple of neurons to fire back and forth, he would have realized this is ridiculous advice, it's stupid, and they can't even tell me why. They can't even tell me why I should do this. Did you notice that the wise advice that he got, be a servant to the people, they said why? They said, if you'll be a servant to the people, they'll be loyal to you. Here's why you should do this. These guys don't even have a reason why. All they're doing is telling it, they're giving him words to say. And this is a further evidence that Rehoboam was a weak leader. A good leader takes advice and makes his own or her own decision. A weak leader takes someone else's decision and copies it in duplicate. And that's exactly what happened with Rehoboam. Jeroboam and these other guys show back up to have this meeting three days later. And Rehoboam spoke harshly to the people. So he didn't just, you know, say terrible things. He had a terrible tone of voice. And this is what he said. My father laid heavy burdens on you, but I'm going to make them even heavier. And he really liked the scorpion slogan. He thought maybe we could put that on a poster or something, right? Because he said, um, my father beat you with whips, but I'm going to beat you with scorpions. Now, surprise of all surprises, this did not go over well. Right? The Bible says that in doing this, the king paid no attention to the people. More or less by saying this, he was saying, I don't care about any of y'all. He's supposed to be the king. These people have the power to make him king or not king. And he showed up and basically said, y'all are completely worthless. The only purpose that you serve in life is to make me happy. Right? So when all Israel realized that the king had refused to listen to them, they responded, down with the dynasty of David. It sounds like a great picket sign. great alliteration. Down with David's dynasty. Right? Um, and they're marching back and forth with picket signs, and they're saying, we don't have any interest in the son of Jesse. Back to your homes, O Israel. Look out for your own house, O David. Basically saying, you don't, this guy doesn't have any authority over me. He may have authority over his own tribe, but we don't have to listen to this guy. So the people of Israel returned home, but Rehoboam continued to rule over the Israelites who lived in the towns of Judah. So here's what that means. 
up until this time, so under King Saul, King David, and King Solomon, Israel was together, one nation, 12 tribes, and these 12 tribes each had their own sort of uh, location, but it was, it was all throughout Israel, one nation, right? Uh, uh, and, and what happened when Rehoboam blew this thing up, when he came out and made this announcement, 10 of the 12 tribes said, well, you're not our king anymore. And they went home. All 10 of the northern tribes said, you know what, we're going to start our own country. We don't need you. And guess who got to be the new king? Jeroboam, right? Because he was the guy who, who actually acted like he cared. I mean, later they'd find out he didn't, but that's a whole other story. So the two, the two tribes in the south stay together, but you have to understand if you're Rehoboam, you're not popular now with anybody. Even in the two tribes that stay in the south, you're not popular because what just happened is over 80% of the country just walked and there's nothing you can do. Sometimes people say that Rehoboam started a civil war. That's being gracious to Rehoboam. He couldn't have started a civil war. 80% of the country just walked off. The 20% that's left is, has no other choice but just to wave goodbye and say, all right, take care. You can't fight that. Think about this. When those guys told him he was gonna have to take a pay cut, who knows how much, 20%, 25%, whatever, he was thinking, I don't, I'm not going to take a pay cut. As a result, he lost 80%, over 80% of the tax-paying populace in his country. It was a bad decision. And it was bad advice. The advice that he got from his frat brothers was not good advice. So if you've got to make a big decision, this, the Bible says that these are here to teach us. We're supposed to learn something from this. So what can we learn from this story about advice? I, I looked at it with a clean slate this week. I said, I want to I look at this from, with fresh eyes. And as a person who takes a lot of advice, I wanted to figure out what are the telltale signs of a bad advisor? What are the telltale signs of somebody that I don't need to be giving me advice? And, and this is what the, the talk's going to hinge on. By the way, before we get there, let's talk for a second about the purpose of advice. Why do you get advice? What, what, what's the purpose of asking? I think Solomon and Rehoboam had very different ideas about this. I think Solomon was a, a decent teacher to his son, saying, here's some things that you should do. But sometimes I think Solomon didn't do a very good job explaining why to his kids. Because I think for Solomon, the reason that you ask for advice is because that's part of the process of how you find wisdom. If you read the book of Proverbs, Solomon talks about wisdom as something that you find. Insight is something that you discover. Understanding is something that you have to look for. It's out there, but it's not just going to land in your lap. You've got to go looking for it. You've got to pan for gold. And asking for advice is part of how you continue to get information until you find that nugget of wisdom that's going to help you make a good decision in your life. But I don't think that, that Rehoboam got the message. I think he understood that you asked for advice. But I think for Rehoboam, the reason that you asked for advice is because that's how you crowdsource decisions. You know, you throw the net out there really wide and let anybody, answer, let anybody speak into this that you want to speak into it. And eventually, maybe you'll come up with something that you can use. As a culture, we do this. There's a whole field of research looking into the fact that, that now on Facebook and even sometimes on, on Twitter, you have people that are asking everybody in their social network for major life advice. We have people asking whether or not they should leave their spouse on social media to let anybody who's on their friend list or connected to their friend list in some way speak into that situation. People asking whether they should stay at the same university or leave that university, whether they should make this financial decision or that. There are some people that have gotten so into the habit of throwing the net wide, they cannot make a major financial consumer decision without asking everybody on their social network. But there's a problem with crowdsourcing decisions. And, and this is the problem. Even though we might think that we're really good at parsing out good advice from bad advice and only accepting, digesting, and considering good advice, the science says not so much. 
I'm, I'm both a pastor and an active student of psychology. I've been for years. And in the psycho- psychological field, one of the findings that, that's, that's become even more robust over the last 10 or 15 years is that when we get advice, whether or not we think that it affects us, we are affected by every piece of advice that we get. As a matter of fact, and, and this is scary, um, and, and I'm going to try to explain this. I could spend the whole time trying to explain this, this effect because it's so cool, but I'll try to explain it in, in capsule. That if I were to give you a piece of advice, so say I met, met up with you and I, I gave you a piece of advice on, um, you know, I don't know, what sort of equity investment you, you should get into, right? And I give you this advice, and then you say, now why should I trust you on that? And I say, because I slept at a holiday in last night, Right? Um, you're going to view that, when I say I slept a holiday in last night, you're going to view that as what we call a discounting factor. Immediately you're going to go, well, that's no reason why I should take this person's advice. And you're going to think in that moment, well, I'm going to ignore that advice that he just gave me because there's no point in taking it. Here's what we now know from decades of psychological research. We know that eventually you will forget why you decided not to take my advice. And over the course of a week to two weeks, especially about five or six days time, the advice that I gave you is going to start sounding better and better and better because you're going to start forgetting why there was a reason not to listen. Every piece of advice that we get affects us. So it's not okay to just throw the gates wide open and take input from anybody about what we're going through. Whether or not we think we're listening, there is a part of us that is listening. And so maybe we could just put it this way. This would be maybe a simple way of sort of finding the hinge that this message rests on. Not everyone who can give you advice should give you advice. As a matter of fact, I find this to be axiomatic in life, that, that the people who tend to, to, to say the most, the people who tend to give the most advice to other people know the least about what other people should do. Seems to me people who are the, the most ready to tell everybody what they ought to do are the people that have the least clue about what everybody ought to do, right? So if this is true, and not everyone who can give you advice should give you advice, that leads us to another question. How do you know whose advice to trust? How do you know who should be an advisor in your life? And that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time on. I'm going to give you three questions to give you a grid for knowing, should this person speak into my life on this issue, or should they not? Okay, here we go. Question number one. If somebody's trying to give you advice, the very first question you should ask is, does this person know more than I do? I know that's brilliant, right? That's what you came here for on a Sunday morning. But here's the thing, in our culture, we routinely ask people for advice who do not know more than we do about the thing that we're asking about. When I do life coaching and and marriage coaching, uh, people will tell me about who is a a counselor in their life. This person is a sounding board for me. This person is somebody I go to for advice. Or this is somebody who speaks into this area of my life. And, And, you know, often I'll ask, well, what qualifies that person to give you advice? And so often, you know what the answer I'll get is? Because we're close because we're tight, because we're family, because we're friends, and, and, or because I like that person. And those are all wonderful things, but you know, those aren't the pivotal, pivotal reasons somebody should give you advice. Look, if, if, if you've got a big decision to make and there's somebody that's your best friend, go out and have snow cones with them after you make the decision. Before you make the decision, you need to talk to somebody who knows more than you do about it. Somebody who brings something to the table that you don't bring. I was talking to um, a, a friend of mine in... Edmond. My, my wife and I were uh, at a church in Edmond before I came to serve here. And in that community, there's a lot of uh, hospitals and, and medical organizations and so forth. So our church had a lot of doctors and nurses and, um, and you know, clinic administrators. And I was talking to a person who'd been an administrator over a surgical um, fa- uh, facility for quite some time. And he was saying, you know, Jonathan, I've gotten to the point now where I, I've been an administrator for so many years, I think I almost know more than the doctors do. 
And I thought, I, I kind of get a little, I, I sort of chafe at those sorts of remarks because I think about all the training that doctors have to go through and the, the, you know, the, the, the residency and the, all that stuff. And, and I said, oh yeah, you, you feel that way? And he said, well, I especially felt that way the other day. I went in for a surgery at my clinic. He said, it's kind of a funny thing when you work at the same place where you have surgery. He said, I went and answered a few emails and then I headed down the hall to go you know, have them start everything. He said, the doctor came in to talk to me about the procedure. He's one of the youngest guys there, hasn't been out of school all that long. And he started to kind of explain to me the procedure. You know, this is arthroscopic. Um, knee uh, procedure, was explaining how it all goes and drawing little circles and explaining how the equipment works and all this stuff. And he said the whole time he was telling me that, I just thought, man, I know so much more about this than he does. And when he finished talking, I said, you know, I don't think we're going to do this today. He said, I told the anesthesiologist, don't, don't even bother. And I, I backed out of it. And he said, I rebooked it for another day with a different surgeon. He said, because I, I know that I know more about that surgery than he does. And I said, well, I don't understand. How, how do you think you know more about that knee surgery than, than he did? And he said, because I came in there to get my left elbow operated on. <laughs> it is dangerous to take advice from somebody who knows less than you do about the thing that you're there to talk to them about, right? And that's exactly what happened with Rehoboam. The older men who had counseled his father, the Bible says these guys had experience. They brought wisdom and insight and understanding to the table that, that Rehoboam didn't have. It wasn't Rehoboam's fault. These guys had just been around a lot longer. I mean, when Rehoboam was running around in diapers, these guys were already thinking about economic policy. So this wasn't new stuff for them. These were the guys to talk to. But interestingly, the guys he ended up listening to, they gave him advice. And the, you know the main reason that he took advice from them was because they were close. They'd grown up together. But the truth is, they didn't know a thing more than he did, and Rehoboam didn't know anything to start with, so they knew less than nothing. And he's listening to these guys. So what this means, it was what I'm trying to say is, first of all, if you've got an advisor in your life, and somebody's trying to tell you, what you, you know, how you should handle something or trying to give you insight, first of all, they need to bring experience. If they don't have experience, then they shouldn't be having that conversation with you. What do I mean by experience? Again, it's a combination of understanding, insight, and wisdom. They ought to bring more to the table than you do. I don't mean they're smarter necessarily than you, but I mean they bring something additional to the table that you can leverage to make a good choice. All right, that's question number one. Here's question number two. So the question number one was, do they know more than I do? Question number two is this. Will this person tell me what I need to know, or will they tell me what I want to hear? And this one is huge. Because as a culture, we've kind of skewed the concept of advice a little bit. If, if advice is working in the zone that it should be, getting advice should be about getting meaningful information. I'm asking people questions because I need meaningful information about this decision. But in our culture, advice is less about information and has now become more about confirmation. See, I already know the decision I want to make. I already know what I think about this. I already know how I want to approach this. So I, I don't go talk to somebody so I can get more information. What I want is somebody who will tell me that I'm making the right decision. I want somebody to tell me that I'm thinking the right way. I want somebody to confirm for me that I'm handling this right. We don't want information. We want confirmation. That's why that guy will go to work and tell all of his buddies at work how terrible his wife's being to him. You won't believe what she said. You won't believe what she did because he knows those other guys at work are going to say, I can't believe she did that to you. I can't believe she said that to you. I mean, she is absolutely making your life miserable. You had a right to stomp off. I would, have, I would have told her off worse than you did. Why? Because we don't want information. We want confirmation. Or it's why his wife will go online on social media and type the whole fight up in dialogue and conversation bit by bit so that her friends will log on and say what? I can't believe he said that to you. I can't believe he did that. You're living through such a nightmare. Why? Because we don't want information. We want confirmation. Getting advice should be about perspective. But a lot of times, what we, don't, we don't really want perspective, we want permission. 
We want to hear what we want to hear. But the Bible says that if we want good advice, we need to be ready to hear things that aren't pleasant. Here's what the Bible says. If you listen to constructive criticism, and what we mean by criticism here is not name-calling, not belittling. Constructive criticism is basically someone saying, you're probably not going about this the right way. Here's a better way to go about this. So if you can do that, if you can listen to the hard stuff, you will be at home among the wise. And what does that mean? Well, in the book of Proverbs, it's very clear. Some people draw wise people to them, and some people push wise people away. Why? Well, because wisdom is always looking for a listening ear. And a wise person only gives advice because they're hoping someone's listening. If they give advice and the person they're talking to isn't listening, they're going to move on to the next person. They're just not going to waste their time. So a person who can hear advice, whether, it, whether it's what you were wanting to hear or what you weren't wanting to hear, if you can accept it and digest it and take it in, you're going to be at home with wise people. You're going to pull wise people to you because they're going to feel like they're not wasting their time with you. But if you aren't able to hear anything other than what you were already thinking in the first place, a wise person is going to say, this is a waste of my time. And beyond that, the Bible says that if we can't listen to constructive criticism, if you reject discipline, you only harm yourself. Well, we know that from growing up, right? As an adolescent, as a teenager, you know how it was. Your parents would tell you, you know, don't make that decision. It's not smart. Your parents would say, I really don't think that you want to perm the way that you think you want to perm. <laughs> and you would do the thing that teenagers do, right? We have that little reflex where we go, tch, tch, right? Uh, you say, I'm going to do what I want to do, Right? And your, or your parents say, look, you, you know, you're too young to get a credit card. You're going to get into debt before you even make it to college, and that's not smart. Listen, the credit card companies are not looking out for you, and you fill out that application. You say, I'm almost an adult. I'm going to do what I want to do anyway. <laughs> right? So what's funny is, as a teenagers, we would say, I showed them. I showed my mom and dad. We were crazy, right? You didn't hurt your parents. A person who doesn't take a wise person's advice doesn't hurt the wise person. If you don't take a wise person's advice, the only person you're hurting is yourself. Some of us have learned that the hard way. So we have to ask ourselves the question, am I looking for information or am I looking for confirmation? Listen, if we're looking for confirmation, we should just stop because it's totally pointless. We already know what we want to hear. Secondly, am I searching for perspective or permission? Do I want to know more about the situation or do I just want to have somebody tell me that, I'm gonna, that it's okay to do what I already want to do? At the end, we could just say that basically there's no point in asking for advice until we're ready to hear the whole truth. Somebody in this room is hoping that somebody will give you some good advice about your marriage, but you're not ready to hear the whole truth, so you're not ready for advice. Somebody in this room, you, you want somebody to give you some advice about how to be a good parent. You want, you want some advice on how you can do better in your parenting relationship, but the truth is you won't listen if they give you hard truth, and so you're not ready for advice. I've had people that I've referred to a therapist, a good Christian therapist that I know really well, and I know this person's model and their technique and their faith in God, and I know that this person helps, has helped a ton of people make positive change in their life, and this person, this person will come back to me and say, they did not help me at all. All they did was listen and empathize and try to come up with constructive game plans. It was ridiculous. It was a total waste of time. What, what happened was you have a person who's not ready to hear anything that they would not already tell themselves. They're not ready to get any kind of input. They're not ready to get any kind of counsel or any kind of advice. We're not ready for advice until we're ready to hear the whole truth. So a good advisor doesn't just bring experience, they also bring honesty. They have to be a straight shooter, somebody that's going to tell you the truth, not just what you want to hear. Okay, here's the third question. The third question is the most important, and it goes like this. Is this person motivated by the right things? And, and, and here's why this question is important. There is no such thing as neutral advice. There is no such thing as neutral advice. Every advisor that you work with is pointed, their life is pointed in a direction and they have goals. 
They have goals that they're trying to achieve. And so when you ask for advice, here's, here's what's happening. When you're asking for advice, you're asking to inherit a little bit of their goal because that's all they know how to do. They understand their life orientation, their goals, and they understand how they would pursue things if it was them. When they give you advice, they're, they're sort of allowing you to inherit a little bit of their goals. So you need to know what their goals are. If they have good goals, if they have good loyalties, then that's a good person to listen to. But if this is a person who has a bad loyalty or bad goals, you don't want to inherit any of that. So that's what happened with Rehoboam. These guys that he initially went and talked to, the older men who counseled his father, their loyalty was to the people of Israel. They wanted the people of Israel to do well. For Pete's sake, they wanted Rehoboam to do well. They, they wanted everybody, they wanted what was best for everybody. Yeah, it might have meant a pay cut, but they understood that it would be best across the board for everybody if they did this. What about the young guys? What about the frat brothers? I guarantee you their loyalty was the money. They just wanted a bigger bank account. They wanted more cars, bigger houses, And so, unfortunately, Rehoboam inherited a little bit of that goal and it blew everything up. The Bible says the plans of the godly are just. And that word just is, like, it's it's the same sort of usage as we would use in a word processor when we justify text. We bring it up against a straight line. The Bible's saying the plans of a person with loyalty to God and loyalty to to the best for everyone, they're going to be like, their advice is going to be like a straight arrow. It's it's going to be straight down the fairway. You won't have a hard time following it, and you're going to get where you want to go. But if you're dealing with somebody who has a loyalty to something else, it's going to veer you way off the path. So the, the third thing a good advisor brings, we said they bring experience, they bring honesty, the third thing they bring is loyalty. They're loyal to the right things. If you're dealing with an advisor, you need to know what are their goals, what are their loyalties. So the question that I'm gonna ask closing out this talk is really simple. Who belongs on your board of advisors? Who belongs on your board of directors? Your own personal board of directors. And here's what I mean by that. Who is it in your life that regularly speaks into your situations that either does not have enough experience to be advising you Or number two, they haven't always been honest with you. Or number three, you're not really sure that your goals and their goals are lined up at all. And then who is it out there that maybe it's not somebody that you're tight with, maybe it's not your best buddy, maybe it's not your best friend, maybe it's not a family member, maybe you don't even like this person. But this person has experience and they will shoot straight with you and you know that they want what's best for everybody. Because that person belongs there. Because make no mistake about it, your board of directors, your own personal board of directors, your future is only as good as they are. I'll tell a quick story, even though we're in overtime and they'll be done. When, um, when we were first married, I went into the automotive business on the service side, repair, and I ended up in service management, um, working with people. And um, so I was working on a service drive with other advisors, and um, it was a particularly stressful time uh, in our marriage and winning my marriage. We, uh, we just had a lot of stress points going on. And young families in the room, you, you know what I'm talking about. Finances were very tight. Um, I was working crazy long hours, which is pretty common in that industry. Um, and then on top of that, we, we, we had a, a new child at home. I, I can't remember. I want to say Cheyenne was maybe about one or so. Um, and, and it was just, there were a lot of things going on. And, and so there was already sort of like a, a, an undercurrent of stress. But beyond that, Wendy and I, we have very opposite personalities. When we take one of those personality tests, we're, we're like that, right? We're on separate, separate ends of the, of the spectrum. And on a good day, what that means is that we each contribute something that the other person doesn't bring, and that's a really great thing. On a bad day, that means that we can butt heads sometimes, right? It doesn't happen nearly as much anymore, but in those days, we were butting heads all the time. We were having arguments all the time and just not getting along. 
And I don't know if there's anybody in the room here who's kind of like I am, but I'm a little bit of a catastrophizer. Do I have any soul brothers and sisters out there? I'm a little bit of a cast. I can take a molehill and turn it into a massive mountain really quickly. And so I turned the fact that we weren't getting along into a catastrophe. Now, we didn't have a real catastrophe in our marriage. Nobody had cheated on. I hadn't cheated on her. She hadn't cheated on me. Neither of us were being abusive to each other. Those things are catastrophic. You can, you know, some people, by God's grace, have been able to recover from them, but those are true catastrophes. We didn't have a catastrophe. We just weren't getting along. But I turned it into a catastrophe, and I got to the point where I thought, I don't think I can stay in this marriage. <clears throat> and a big part of my thinking that was I was working in an environment where I was getting bad advice. Just about everybody I worked with, with I can't even think of an exception right now, just about everybody I worked with had been through a divorce. Um, some of them, uh, a couple of divorces, a few divorces. And I was getting advice from them, and they were all on my side. Um, and one person from the sales department came over and said to me, you know, Jonathan, your first marriage is just when you learn about yourself. You don't really experience marriage till your second or third marriage. <laughs> Such a moron. But um, <laughs> anyway, I was getting all kinds of bad advice, and, and, and I honestly got to a point, and I had, we'd had a particularly bad argument the night before. I went to work and I just thought to myself, enough is enough, I'm done with this, I need to get out of this marriage. Not knowing really, not having any perspective as a young man of what I was even really thinking or saying. And I walked into my boss's office, who'd also been divorced, and I said, I need to take a few days off. I'm, my, my marriage is unwinding on me. Unwinding is a term in the car business we use for a deal that's falling apart. So I needed to use a car term. I said, my marriage is unwinding on me and uh, I need a few days to figure out how to put an end to this and then I'll come back to work. And uh, I expected him to just pencil in a few days on his calendar and we'd walk away and that would be it. Um, instead, he looked at me, and this is a pretty big guy, this is a muscular guy, not somebody that I would wanna mess with. And he looked at me and in a big booming voice, he said, sit down. <laughs> so I sat down. Um, and he said, I wanna talk to you about something. He said, my divorce was the worst chapter of my life. He said, I would drive by the home that my wife and I made together. Big burly guy, he said, I would drive by that home and I would cry and not know what, how did this all fall apart? He said, my kids got to see me one day a week and no matter how many times I tried to explain to them, I, would, I wanted to see them more than that. They had the impression that I didn't want to see them more than that. And he said, we're still dealing with the emotional aftermath of that. He said, financially, my life was almost in ruins. He said, I had a great job and a good income, and I still almost lived out of my car for a little while. He said, it's been years and years since then. And he said, only now has my life really started to come out of that. And he said, God has done a lot of great things, and, and a lot of the pain that I've been through, God has redeemed. But he said, I want you to understand what you're talking about. You think it's a small thing. I'm telling you it's a huge thing. He said, you have a great wife. You have a great daughter, and he said, you have a great future, and you're getting ready to blow up all three of those. And he said, I'm not going to stand by and let you do it. He said, here's what I'm going to do. He said, I'm going to walk outside the door of this office, and I'm going to stand outside the door of this office. I'm going to wait for you to call the 800 number, because our, our company paid for marital therapy. I, I think they understood how, how uh, tenuous marriages could be in that industry. And they said, we're going to pay for marital therapy if you call this number. He said, you call that number. And when you come out of this office, I'm going to ask you if you called and if you scheduled it. If you say yes, I'll let you out. <laughs> he said, if you say no, you're going to go back in there and you're going to make the phone call. Uh, it, it turns out it's profoundly illegal, um, uh, what he did, but... <laughs> 
it, it was probably the greatest favor anybody ever did for me. And it's probably the best advice I ever got. It truly was. I was never close to that man. We were never buddies. We were never friends. You know, we had a working relationship. And yet, at that moment, he was the person I needed to be listening to. You know why? He had experience. I mean, he had perspective. He could zoom out for me and say, Jonathan, you think you know what you're talking about. You have no clue what you're talking about. He had honesty. Listen, the last thing I wanted to hear from anybody is that I needed to go to marital counseling. But he told me what I needed to know, not just what I wanted to hear. And the third thing was, he was loyal. He was loyal to me, to my wife, to this church. Believe it or not, because you know what? I wouldn't be here now if it hadn't been for his advice. Even though he knows nothing about you or knew nothing about you at the time, he wanted the best for everybody, so he was doing something for my family, for my family of faith, and for the rest of my future because he gave me good advice. My question is, who belongs on your board of advisors? And who is it time to say, maybe I don't need to hear so much from this person because I got big decisions to make and I've got a big future to enjoy. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for the fact that you've given us wisdom. Help us to determine who belongs in our board of advisors. Help us make good choices. Help us to learn from the story of Rehoboam. And Father, help us to find the destiny that you have for each of us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being here this week for Kings and Queens.